No one has ever seen God. That's what John tells us. It's what he tells us in verse 18 of chapter 1. How long has it been since the beginning? How, how long have the wanderers of this planet wondered where he is, if he's real, if he's out there? Why doesn't he show himself in those moments of tragedy, in those moments of need and pain and suffering and loss? Where is God then? Have you ever had one of those face-down moments where the cool of the floor meets the warmth of your breath and you labor to whisper, God, why? Where are you? Such was the unanswered cry of a man in 1851 as he sat beside the lifeless figure of his 10-year-old daughter, Annie. Loss was nothing new to him. He had experienced the loss of his beloved mother at eight years young. That's old enough to know what's going on, isn't it? That's old enough to hurt. Later on, he would see the wretched state of people trapped in slavery, forced to do hard labor, prodded like savages, barely given the basics one needs to survive. And there were moments where he wondered, how could God allow such inhumanity and sadness to exist? But it wasn't until Annie passed away. It wasn't until his 10-year-old daughter passed away that his soul was torn apart. And he hoped that he had in a good God began to vanish. For a while, he continued to give to his local church. But while his family attended services, he found it a lot more comfortable just to go for a walk around town instead. He couldn't ex escape the haunting pain of his loss. He saw suffering everywhere. In a letter that he penned in 1860, he wrote, there seems to me too much misery in the world. Too much for what? Too much to take? Too much to bear? Too much to go on believing that there was someone out there who had the power to change it all, but didn't seem to be doing anything. The loss of his daughter, it said, was the crushing blow to his religious beliefs. And it set him on a course to write one of the most influential books in all of history. A book which explained the, the struggle and strife, the fighting and fury, the desperate quest for survival as the driving force behind life as we know it. A book which would take God out of the picture and put an end to our search for his face in the midst of our scars. He would propose that who we are now is the product, not of an all-powerful, all-knowing designer, but of a natural process of adaptation to our surrounding environment. We all know the book, and we all know the man. The Origin of the Species by Charles Robert Darwin. If there is a God, where is he? Why is he silent? 
Why doesn't he show up? He sees what's going on, right? Why doesn't he do something? If he is who the Bible says that he is, then why doesn't he make himself known and reach down and save us? Such is the cry of the ages, a cry that has been uttered time and time and time again. And such is the cry that was answered on Christmas Day. No one has ever seen God. That is, until. The five verses that we have before us this morning are arguably the most important of all the 31,102 verses in the Bible. It says this, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This is he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Hope hope has been found. It found us. Jesus is the answer to the cry of the ages because Jesus is God made known. In the beginning, we cut ourselves off from God. We severed the relationship between us and God. In the beginning, human beings first experienced a perfect, untarnished, uninhibited relationship with God. They walked with him. They talked with him in a garden paradise. Life was good. Life made sense. Life had no needs that were not perfectly met in the one who gave life in the first place. But then everything changed. Familiarity was replaced by fear. Intimacy was replaced with insecurity. Provision was replaced with poverty. Satisfaction was replaced with scarcity. Purpose was replaced with pondering. Joy was replaced with sorrow. Life was replaced with death. For ages and ages, people have looked up to the sky and asked, God, where are you? And in the event that we celebrate on Christmas Day, he answered, I'm right here. The elusive, inaccessible, unfathomable creator has come to us. How did he do that? We learn in John 1 that God became man. The word became flesh, it says. The full, true, complete God became man. That doesn't mean that he just appeared to be man. It doesn't mean that he changed into a man, he somehow transformed. No, he became something that he was not before. He became man. That means all of God the Son, God the eternal word, took upon himself a human nature. He's no less God than he was before. 
but now he's more. But God doesn't know what I'm going through. He doesn't understand how hard it is to be me. You've heard that before, right? How, how, how could he understand what it's like to be me? Supposedly he's all-powerful, all-knowing, but guess what? He's all out of touch. Well, not anymore. Just as he heard the cries of people suffering in Egypt, he has not been unaware of the cries that have risen from the surface of this planet from the very first moment when people went astray. And not only has he heard, he has acted. It's true. No one has ever seen God, but Christ has made him known. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he, Jesus Christ, has made him known. When that divine logos, the, the eternal word, became human, God would now have firsthand experience of what it was like to live as one of us, to be born to grow, to survive in a world plagued with problems and pain and loneliness and loss. He would experience trials and temptations. He would come to know what it meant to hurt, to heal, and even to die. As you and I have gotten that tel telephone call, or maybe we sat beside that hospital bed as the life of a loved one was pried away from their body. As that happened, our maker sympathizes with our suffering. And he can do that because he's been there himself. Sympathy is good, isn't it? It's good to know that we're not alone in our pain. It's good to know that there are others out there who have gone before us, right? That, that's good to know. But what's even better is being able to lean on them as you go through it, right? That's a lot better. Not only would God know firsthand what it was like to be one of us, more importantly, he would be knowable. Unlike ever before, humanity could actually know God. Jesus was God come near. He was, he was God experienced as flesh and blood. 1 Timothy 6.16 describes God as the blessed and only sovereign, the king of kings and lord of lords, who alone has immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. Until Jesus. Until Jesus, there was little to know of God. Moses longed to go know God more fully than he already did. He was the guy who spoke one-on-one -on -one with God as that bush burned in Exodus 3. Verse, verse 2 tells us, The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. He had an experience with God. He spent time 
in the presence of God up on that mountain. God revealed to him that the afterglow of his glory as God passed by in Exodus 33. And it actually had a dramatic effect on Moses' appearance. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai, we read that his face was shining from the encounter shining with the glory of God. That's how close he was. And they actually had to put a veil over his face because it was too bright for people to look at. If anyone knew God, it was Moses. But you know, Moses did not experience God even close to as much as those who walked with and talked with Jesus. And that's because Jesus was God become man. Jesus was God in the flesh. He wasn't just part God or part of God. He was fully God, walking and talking with people. Verse 16 says, from his fullness we have all received. He was more than just a voice. More than just words, more than just a a feeling, Jesus walked and talked and touched and worked and reacted and sympathized. He was the fullness of God experienced through the lens of flesh and blood. John the Baptist knew it, and that's what he proclaimed. Even though Jesus was six months younger than him, began his ministry after him, John knew that Jesus was far superior than him because Jesus was God in the flesh. And if he was God, that meant that he existed long before before John. Jesus was eternal God become man. John wanted to know, know that, he wanted everyone to know that this was no ordinary man. This was the fullness of God in man. No one. Not Abraham, not Moses, not Elijah, or anyone else had experienced God like this. Hebrews 1 tells us long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also, he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. You want to know where God is? You want to know what he thinks, how he feels, the way he responds to human suffering and what he does about it? Look no further than Jesus. Pastor Joe said it a couple months ago that we need to know more of Jesus. We need to understand him more. We need to experience him more. And that's the reason we're going to be spending time the next few months looking at his visitation as we go through the the gospel of Mark. We're going to see who he is and what happened when he came and he shook this town. It's going to be a great ride. I hope you'll join us for that. We need to know Jesus so that as we sit by that hospital bed 
And as we struggle to keep our sanity, as we care for our cooped up kids, as we look at our plans for the future just being completely hijacked, and as we strap on those face masks to go to the store or lay awake at night with a lump in our throat and tears soaking the pillow from a loved one who has been lost, we need to know Jesus so that we have no doubt in our minds. That God cares. He cares. Not only did God make himself known by becoming man, he became man and he came near. God came near. The word became flesh. And what did he do? He dwelt among us. That word dwelt is the word tabernacled. He camped out. He tented among us for 33 years. If you've been to Sunday school, if you've gone to church, read the Bible much at all, you know that the children of Israel, after they left Egypt, and as they were headed towards the promised land, God instructed them to, to create a large meeting tent. Create the tabernacle. It could be set up, it could be torn down, it could be carried, it could be taken away on their journey, taken with them as they traveled. That was the tabernacle. The tent, that tent, was a picture of Jesus. Think about it. That tent was the place where the presence of God would, would come down and be made known to his people. The glory of God, the presence of God, the cloud of God, the Shekinah would descend upon the tent and everyone would know that God was near. He was there, dwelling among them. They were traveling through the wilderness, looking for their new home, much the same as we're looking for our new home today, aren't we? We're looking forward to it anyway. But God was there with him with them, leading them, providing for them, bringing them to the place that he had promised. What a picture of Jesus, because he's doing that same thing for us right now. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. The glory of God was present in Jesus. It was veiled as he walked through town, people's eyes weren't, weren't burned up or shriveled into raisins in their skulls because his body was just bursting with glory. No, no, no. There was a, there was a, he was veiled by the flesh that he took on. But John, James, and Peter saw when the veil was torn off. Do you remember that? As they stood on the top of the mountain... Luke 9, 28 tells us, Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who had appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem, what an astounding, what a dumbfounding experience that must have been to all of a sudden realize the full glory of God has been in Jesus all that time. As you were sitting down eating with him, as you were shooting the breeze, the glory of God was contained within him. They looked at him and they saw a man. They saw a regular guy who was actually 
the Bible tells us, not that attractive to begin with. But within him was the fullness of God. Notice it said that Moses and Elijah were there. They appeared. They were talking beside him in the tabernacle. In the simple, unassuming, not so glorious tent, there was an inner room where there was a golden Ark of the Covenant. And it sat in this place called the Holy of Holies. And upon the top of the Ark was was a piece called the Mercy Seat, where God's glory, the Shekinah glory of God, rested between two angelic figures. Coincidence? I don't think so. What a picture this is. I think it's a picture of Jesus' transfiguration on top of that mountain as he's standing there between these two figures and his glory is displayed in the presence of three witnesses. What what a shadow of what was coming the tabernacle was. I wonder if Peter and James and John, as they were standing there, understood the parallel as they saw the blazing glory between Moses and Elijah. What an illustration for how God would one day come to dwell among his people in a far more profound way in Jesus Christ. There's more, actually. The tabernacle was the place where the law was kept The first copy of the Ten Commandments was destroyed, but the second set was carefully placed and protected and stored within that Ark of the Covenant. That's where they were preserved inside the tent. Well, guess what? Jesus would later be the tabernacle in which God's law was perfectly lived out. He said in Psalm 40, verse 7, Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me, I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. The tabernacle, it housed the law. As Jesus tabernacled among us, he epitomized the law. Not only that, the tabernacle was a place where sacrifices were made in worship to God, to make atonement, to make payment for the sins of the people. Blood was shed on that brazen altar that was set just outside in the the tabernacle courtyard. And of course, Jesus himself would become that ultimate sacrifice for us, for the sins of God's people. As he hung on the altar of a wooden cross, his precious blood would be shed to make atonement for the rebellion of everyone who would trust in his name. Hebrews 9 tells us, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy place, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. God came near. He lived among us in Jesus. And we find ourselves in a season where many of us are isolated. Many of us are alone. We're hurting. 
We're waiting. We're longing. We're searching for hope. Remember that as lofty and supreme as God is, He's not distant. He's come near. You're not alone. You have not been abandoned. You are not a castaway like Robinson Crusoe, alone and forgotten on a desert island. You're not like that. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Hope has been found. It found us, actually. Jesus is the answer to the cry of the ages because Jesus is God made known. He became man. He came near. Finally, God poured out grace and truth through Jesus. John wrote, we have seen his glory. Glory as, the, as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. In verse 16, he wrote, for from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Moses wrote the law, also known as the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. And we just finished our study in, in Genesis a few months back. And what an awesome book that was. It, it, it opens our eyes to the way things are and how they got to be this way, right? It points us to the unwavering justice and the incredible mercy of, of, our, of our maker. It leads us to the conclusion that he's not going to abandon us and leave us to just wallow in our own folly. No, no, no. He has a plan, a plan for this worn-out world and its inhabitants. Genesis is amazing. The Old Testament law it was an expression of God's grace. Oh, to have that, well, that's, like, that's like gold. I, 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 I can make sense of things. I can understand why the world is the way the world is. People who had turned away from God, they were wandering through life, living, struggling, dying, having babies, and repeating the cycle over and over again. They experienced God's grace when he called a man named Abraham. He called him out promised to bless the whole world through his family. That's an example of, of undeserved, unearned kindness. It's an example of grace. The law told God's people how they should live in relationship with him. That's an example of God's grace. He didn't leave us wondering how we were, how are we supposed to behave? Am I, am I pleasing God? Am I not pleasing God? He told us. But God knew we were going to fail to measure up, didn't he? He knew it. So he set up a sacrificial system so that his people might see that forgiveness and restoration, will those are costly things. Turning on the one who gave you life, well, it's going to cost you. It's going to cost a life to forgive. It was God's grace that was put on display as his people were called to make sacrifices for their sins by sh the shedding of blood. Shedding of a spotless lamb on that altar. They had hope that their guilt, the guilt of their sin, had been washed away. They experienced God's grace as they trusted that his, his anger, his wrath against them had been satisfied in those sacrifices. And yet that was only a shadow 
of the perfect expression of God's grace that was coming. It only pointed to the real salvation that we all need, that we find in Jesus Christ. Hebrews 10.1 tells us, For since the law has, been, has but... For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. The law is good. It gives us a picture. It gives us a shadow of what's coming, but it's, there's something better coming. When God became man, when he came near and his fullness was experienced, a superior example of God's grace was shown to the world. The world would, would now be able to know him as they had never known him before. The shadow would give way to substance. <laughs> they would witness a perfect life lived out. They would see how much he cares for them, how much he desires to be near them. They would have access to what is true rather than being stuck fumbling around in what is false. They would see that God never intended them to be saved by their own doing, by perfectly following the law. That was never God's intention. They would see that his awesome grace would be put on display when his one and only son, his eternal word made flesh, would give himself to make payment for their, their failure. That's awesome. He would be the final, once and for all, ultimate sacrifice. The law that came through Moses, that was good. That was great, but Christ is the fulfillment of it. He's the completion of it. He's the one who wraps it all up, slaps a bow on top, and delivers up as a gift that is far greater than anything that could ever fit under a tree. Hope has been found. It found us. Jesus is the answer to the cry of the ages because Jesus is God made known. In a letter recorded in the life and letters of Charles Darwin, he regrettably writes, I'm sorry to have to inform you that I do not believe in the Bible as a divine revelation, and therefore not in Jesus Christ as the Son of God. Charles. If only when you buried your head in your hands and you wept at the bedside of your daughter. If only then you would have seen Jesus for who he really is, then maybe, maybe then you would have understood that God cares for you. Maybe you would have understood his love for the world his extraordinary outpouring of grace and truth that brings us from death to life, from darkness to light, from the depths of despair to glorious hope. Maybe you would have seen that. 
hope has been found. It found us. Jesus is the answer to the cry of the ages because Jesus is God made known. He became man. He came near. Through Jesus, God poured out his grace and truth far, far greater than he had ever done before. Where is your hope this Christmas? Where is your hope? What are you looking for? Where are you looking? Have you found yourself asking, where is God in all of this? Where is God in the pain and the suffering? Where is God in the politics? Where is God in the crazy policies that you see, in the injustices, in the dismantling of freedom, in the deconstruction of one nation under God? Where is God in all of that? Are you at a point of having one of those face-down moments where the cool of the floor meets the warmth of your breath and you labor to whisper, God, why? Where are you? Before you consider strolling down that same path that Charles Darwin took, take a long, hard look at Jesus. God's answer to the cry of the ages. God become man. God come near. And God's provision of grace and truth. No one has ever seen God. That is, until the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Father, we thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the evidence that you do care. You do love us. You grieve over our, our suffering. And you made a way by the suffering of your son that we might be restored, reconciled, brought back into perfect relationship with you and given hope that goes far beyond this life and stretches out into eternity. Thank you, God. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the first Christmas. We love you. We praise you. And we pray, Lord, that this season, that this Christmas, more people would find hope in you. They've been running after hope in all sorts of different directions, and as they've been running, they've been running away from you. May they stop, turn, and see that Jesus is our one and only hope. We pray these things in Christ's name and for his sake and his glory. Amen.